going through your 20s and just like give her and try and fail and succeed and whatever, all, all you're doing is learning more about yourself and adversity will help you deal with failure and pivot and change. And like, you gotta fail, but you also gotta pick your socks up and keep going after that's happened. You're listening to the Talking 20 Podcast, where we're joined by fellow millennials to chat about how none of us know what we're doing, but we're all on our own unique journey to figure it out. We're your hosts, Bridget O'Rourke and Mary Margaret Courtney. Let's get started. Welcome to the second episode of Talking 20. We're starting up this podcast to have conversations with real people like you about how they're navigating this defining decade of their 20s. And we thought, what better way to start off this series by interviewing each other? This will give you a chance to get to know us as your hosts on a deeper level as we chat about the journey of our 20s, and it'll also give us a chance to practice our techniques before motoring into the conversations with some super interesting people. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. This really helps us to become more easily discoverable, and you can also follow along with our podcast journey on Facebook and Instagram at Talking20Podcast. So, today we're going to be digging into Mary Margaret and taking you through the story of her 20s. Mary has a great story, and I'm excited to get some juicy details out of her. So, Mary, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What the hell were you doing before you came on this podcast? Yeah, I was living that pandemic lifestyle. Uh, What, what? Uh, My quarantine dream. So, uh, I was working in marketing and social media for a company named Palmy Cider. Super awesome. Um, My job was event-based, so uh, I haven't really obviously been doing that. And pre-COVID, I was doing um, all events, producing, I produced a wine and food festival, I was working conferences, uh, weddings, the wedding thing was really picking up steam. So during COVID, before this podcast, I was really digging my heels into uh, what the heck this world's going to look like post-COVID, what events are going to look like, maybe what I could learn out of that. So, you know, looking at health and safety, doing some uh, doing some professional development, some trainings, some courses, some webinars. I've got some certifications. Uh, just basically trying to like be as prepared as I can for this post-COVID world, whatever that's going to look like. Yeah. How did it? How did all of the events and stuff change when COVID happened? Did you have a bunch of them lined up and then they all just ended? <laughs> yeah, they just ceased to exist. Um, I torture myself by keeping all the notifications in my calendar. So every time I was supposed to work, <laughs> passes by. Yeah, they just stopped entirely. I mean, that it is a highly affected industry because it just couldn't happen. So some events were happening online for sure, but it's just not the capacity that they could if they were live. So yeah, everything stopped, came to a full-on halt. From your research, what have you learned about how events are going to move forward after this? I don't think COVID policies will go away as much as some people want that. You know, maybe one day in the near future, we might see an event without masks, but there's still going to be that option and that extra protection because we're just very far away from it being gone. And the event industry doesn't want to be responsible for outbreaks, obviously. And the fact that it was shut down, they want to show that they can operate in this capacity and keep everybody safe. So it's kind of funny because when you're planning an event, you have risk management assessments and you have health and safety plans. Like you want to keep people safe, but now with COVID, it's at the forefront. So it's 
it's stuff that maybe people would have looked over in the past or not worried about. And now they have to, in order to even run an event, they're going to have to make sure these things are in place. Um, so there are COVID compliancy rules that you must follow to even get that permit from that event. So that's happening in other places in the world. That's happening in the States where they're, they're setting up like certain States are doing really well with setting up protocols and procedures. Um, New York state set up a system where like, as soon as you get your vaccine, you basically get like a card on your phone and it has a QR code. So when you go to a hockey game, you just scan your QR code and, and it comes up. There's no information sharing. It just comes up with a check mark like, yep, that person's vaccinated. So it can't be copywritten. But New York State took took that on themselves to put that in place, right? So I think that's what we'll see is like post-pandemic when we're allowed to do stuff. People are going to get out there. People want to be with crowds. Like we're seeing it in hockey. We're seeing it in... Even like music stuff, people are itching to get back out and just enjoy it. People are itching to make out with strangers at the bar. Oh my God, yes. And like boots and hearts, you know, (laughs) just drinking all day in the sun, jamming to your favorite band and not remembering any of it. The best way to spend your days. Yeah. When you were 20 years old, and for people who don't know and need kind of a general idea, you're about two years out of high school at that point. So what were you doing at that point? I was 20. I was in college for musical theater. I was dancing my life away, singing and dancing like life had no problems. Um, I, yeah, so I would have been in my final year of school planning to enter the real world and actually do that thing called adulting. You were in school for musical theater, but now you're in events. So let's talk about that transition. Yeah, it's kind of funny. So uh, great, great. Year two. So the musical theater program was three years long. Year two, I was helping a friend, a teacher passed away, a professor from the school passed away. And the girl that the student, uh, VP of student life, the girl who was in that position, she had to run all the memorial services, but she was close to that professor. So she was kind of struggling to do her job. So I jumped in and helped her and realized, hey, I kind of like this. It's a lot like stage managing, which I'd done in theater in the past. It's a lot like planning a show, producing a show. Um, and then putting it on, like it felt very similar. So I started getting into that. And then um, just, you know, I grew up doing musical theater. It was my life, it was my identity, it was my hobby, it was my community. And that was fantastic. But once I got to that, like, hey, you're in your second year of school. So I've spent a year living away from home. I've learned what that looks like. You get start to get perspective on what the rest of your life's going to look like not having parents as your main support. And I was like, this isn't a career for me. Seeing the long haul and the grind and the uncertainty of being in that position. When you are an actor, you are the product. You have to treat your body that way. You have to live that life. You have to live and breathe that you're researching all the time. You're growing all the time. You're training all the time. I have so much respect for those people. I didn't want to be one of them. (laughs) So when I started doing the events, I was like, this might be something for me. And then literally within, I helped plan that memorial service. They offered me a bursary position, which was like, you know, minimal hours a week. And then by the next year, I was in that VP of student life role and it just fit like a glove. Like it was like I was supposed to end up there in that place doing that job and it just worked seamlessly. So I stayed in my program because I did want to follow through with it and see it through. I thought it still had a lot it could teach me. And then I took that opportunity and worked at the same time on the event stuff. So when I was done school, I left with event contracts and I 
waved goodbye to the performing world and on I went. After school, then did you just go right into working on events? Yeah, that was the first year I uh, volunteered at a conference that I now help manage every year. And it was the first year I volunteered at Boots and Hearts. Uh, It was year two, Boots was on, and I was just so lucky. I was given a team lead position, and they ended up putting me in a stage management role back on the front porch stage with anyone who knows that that festival. It's the second biggest stage there. And huge opportunity. I volunteered. It was free, whatever. That whole summer I spent volunteering, just doing work. I, I had a few small events that I worked when I left. Did you meet anybody famous? Oh, yeah. But to be honest, they weren't the interesting people to me because they're like in pre-show mode and then they're in post-show mode. And a lot of artists sometimes have egos. And when you're a stagehand with a walkie-talkie, they're not necessarily interested in a conversation with you. But um, yeah, like uh, one that was really nice is Tebe, if you're a country fan. Tebe is a really cool guy. He comes from Boots and Hearts. Uh, Tim Hicks started at Boots and Hearts. The Reclaws started at Boots and Hearts. So I knew all those guys before they before they had their, their deals. So that was kind of cool to see that process. And then, uh, yeah, anyone who's been on those lineups, I've definitely been near in, in earshot of them. But, uh, yeah, the celebrity thing's not really my my thing. Doesn't doesn't get me going. You know what but I mean? that's good for events because then if you're around celebrities, you're not going to be starstruck. You can just do your job without being a crazy person. Totally. And I wasn't into country music. So people who were big country fans, like I would leave and I had like I had no idea who Tebe was when I met him. And it was actually a really embarrassing story. And I was pulling hay and I'm allergic to hay. So it was cutting me and my legs were all swollen. And they were like bleeding. But I needed to get this job done because we were doing uh, like a media background behind the stage. So we put up like a step and repeat, which is like that big screen that usually is behind people who take photos with famous people. And they wanted a bunch of hay bales. So I'm hauling all this stuff over. Um, Not a fancy job at all. (laughs) So I'm hauling all this stuff over and Tebe came over and he's having a drink and he's chit chatting and he's asking me uh, about Tim Hicks. And I can't remember there was another artist there and he's like, oh, do you like them? Like, isn't it cool that you're back here? And I was so frustrated and I was like, sorry, buddy, I don't have time for this. Like, I have no idea who the hell you're talking about. (laughs) And I was like, but I really need you to get out of the way. And then later on, someone's like, that's Tebe. And he's fairly big in that industry. Like, he's well-respected in the boots and arts world, too. So I was just like, I'm so... So I, I did tell him later. I was like, I'm so sorry. You caught me at a bad moment, man. And I'm not going to lie. I'm not a country fan. I just didn't know. Like, I had no idea who any of these people were that you're talking about. So after that, I started doing my research before I worked there. Because I moved into the media section later on. So I had to know who I was talking to. But yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So then when you were switching... When you decided that you didn't want to do musical theater anymore, was that scary? Talk about the feelings that you had. Um, no, it wasn't scary. There was a big, there was two things kind of happening. So uh, some people in that program, when they left, they kind of like you leave drained because it's a lot. It's like three years where I felt like I was running a marathon. You are practicing dancing every single day. You're singing every day you know, you get really sick, you still have to perform, you are constantly researching, you're constantly building and like anyone in school, like it's it's a grind. And so I remember like literally the weekend after I graduated, I went away with my mom and I slept for two days straight. She brought me to a hotel 
and she was at a conference and I didn't leave the hotel room. I think maybe I got a manicure, but like I got room service, the lights were off and I slept for two full days. I was so, so tired. So there was kind of like a relief there where I was like, I can put that aside for now. And like, that can be something awesome I did and a badge I wear, but like, it's not, I don't need to now like go out and hustle to get a job. Um, and then the other piece was, is in my final year of school, we had a lot of personal family stuff happen and we lost a few family members. And so I came out and there was a lot of grieving I had to do because when I was in school, the every single death happened during a production. So I didn't get much time to grieve in the moment because I was still working, right? Like I was doing shows, you were performing every night for people. So um, the, the year after that, I took some time for myself. I didn't rush into the event industry. Um, like I said, I volunteered and I tried to learn and meet people and network, but I didn't I didn't push it and yeah, I took a year for myself. So then it kind of naturally flowed into events after that. I remember that year for your family. That was like a devastating year. Can you talk about it? That must've been such a defining year for you. So I had four family members pass. And on top of it, before that, I had two friends from high school who passed in the same year. Now, when I mean the same year, it was kind of like within the school year, the actual calendar year changed, but um, yeah, so I had a friend pass away that January, I had a friend pass away that March, then my grandfather passed in April from prostate cancer, so we kind of knew it was coming, but he decreased pretty fast, um, and yeah, I was away, I was away when all that happened, so I, I wasn't able to go home and visit, um, then the following October, my cousin got in a car accident, and he passed, and then that December, my grandmother passed, and then the following April, my aunt passed away. So, and it was all on the same side of the family. Your aunt was also the mother of your cousin who passed, right? Yeah. So they all lived in the same household, which was crazy. And so it just, it shook everybody. Uh, Anyone in my family who I talk to about it talks about how, like, that was such a defining year and just changed them in so many ways. Our relationships are so much stronger. Um, Some of us changed careers, myself included. Um, It just, it shakes you. And when all those things happen so close together, you don't get that full grieving process. Like they'll say, a lot of people say like, give yourself a year. When you're grieving, give yourself a full year because you have to go through the year of firsts, right? So we weren't getting that because it was like every three months almost something was happening. And, you know, by the end, it was like we were sick of our funeral clothes and we were sick of the funeral home we went to for every single funeral. Um, And then we, you know, we had to work really hard to pull ourselves out of that. Like we would like very purposely get our family together to have good occasions because we'd only seen each other in bad circumstances for a full year. Um, And yeah, so there's, you know, there's still processing happening for everybody and for myself included. I feel... um, I had for my cousin who passed, I had a lead in a show and, you know, the school was helpful and supportive, but they didn't want you leaving. And so I ended up staying for that one and doing my show instead of going home for the funeral. And that's like huge regret, huge, huge regret that I would put something like a performance before something so important in life. Um, but when you're in the thick of it, especially in school, like I work so hard to get a lead 
and I finally get that thing and you only have four performances or whatever it is. And they, you know, I had an understudy or I, sorry, I had a co-star person that also played the role. So they easily could have stepped in. There would have been no problems, but my brain at that point, I think it was a mixture of like not wanting to go home and deal with that really shitty thing. We had already been dealing with grief and I was kind of like, I need to stay. And at the time I thought, yeah, well, you know, like if this was professional, you wouldn't be able to go. It'd be breaking your contract. So sucks to suck that's life. Um, so yeah, I never went home for that. So then that grieving didn't happen until the following year, until I was graduated and I left and then I could actually go home and process everything that happened. So yeah, it, it changed my entire life. So did that, um, like mentality of if I do this as a career, these are the kinds of situations that I won't be able to be involved in. Did that make you change your career? Was that a defining part of it? hundred percent. And it, it's become like a mantra, like a life mantra that, I like to work hard. I like to, you know, have something planned every single day that's work-related. I'm that type of worker bee. I'm very busy. I'm always doing projects. But I have a limit that I do notice some people don't have, which is like, nope, I haven't seen my family. I'm going to do that thing and I'm not going to feel guilty. Or even just like being sick and going to work. Like I've just learned that, that hard way of like, life is too short and too valuable to push it away on going to work to impress a boss. So I'm going to go into work super sick or uh, pushing the limit on how much work I can do and then burning out things like that, that I've learned. You, it's just like I, that year of my life was so hard to get through and there's so much loss in there, but there's also loss within your own life because you are grieving and you know, maybe like for me, I was misdirecting my grief. And so I was acting like everything was fine and I don't need to grieve and I can keep working and I'm going to be a provider for the family. And what do you guys need? So it hit me in weird ways later on. And it was like, yeah, you just can't avoid this shit. So like, we might as well take care of ourselves and work can still come first, but family definitely comes before that, like always. So yeah, it gave me like a weird perspective that, um, think a lot of people in their young 20s don't have. So everything was happening one after the other, all of these deaths. How did that affect your mental health? Do you find that now you're really anxious about certain things because of that? Did it affect you in a long-term way? Oh, totally. I would say in two weird ways, like losing my grandparents with all those other deaths around it gave me this contrast perspective of you those things are supposed to happen when they're that old. Like it was awful watching your grandfather go through cancer, but watching a grandparent pass is so much more peaceful and you can actually come around to seeing that's the full circle of life and it's sad and you miss them and you can mourn, but they also were moving on and that's, that's what's supposed to happen. They lived a full happy life. They had children, they had a happy marriage they traveled the world, they had amazing stories, they got old and they passed. Yeah, it's not tragic. Right, because then next to it, we had tragedy. So it was really easy to, for me, it was really easy to find that. And then since then, I just recently lost my other grandfather. And uh, obviously it's sad, but there was more beauty in it and reflection of the wonderful life he had and celebration and gratitude. And it just changed the way you grieved and it almost made days brighter versus then darker because because you know that feeling of tragedy. Um, and then mental health wise, like the other really weird one is like 
the fear of being in a relationship because part of my brain just goes like, yeah, but one of us are going to die one day, which is, I know I totally need a therapist and someone to help me with that because it's not healthy, but it does. It pops into my head sometimes. And when, you know, I get, I need to be vulnerable with my partner, part of my body wants to go like, or we could just not do this because one of us is going to die anyway. So let's just not do this. Let's just call it quits right now. Just call it quits because like one of us is being left alone. What's the point? Yeah. So I am, I think that, I think that stopped me from having relationships in the past. Um, I mean, we're like, that was 2012 was when the first death happened. So we're, we're a few years out from it now enough to like have a more of the hindsight and reflection of it. And I just know that that's a part of the, the trauma in my brain that I need to work through, but I'm going to let a therapist help me with that one. That's, that's fair. I can't be your therapist right now. <laughs> no, please don't. So would you say that that was the lowest part of your 20s or is there a different part that comes to mind? Yeah, well, what's interesting, those that happened when I was like 19 turning okay, 20 yeah. was when all that first happened. I had my first heartbreak at 19. So mm-hmm. I went into my 20s feeling like adulting just fucking sucked. <laughs> Ready for whatever life throws. Ready. Keep coming at me, bro, because fucking sucks right now. So there was definitely that. But yeah, what I mean, um, my lowest low of my 20s, it's 28 now. So I've still got another year to, you know, have shit hit the fan. Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit like that natural lost feeling. So that year I took off after college, I went and moved to Ottawa. I moved in with my cousins and I nannied their baby, a beautiful little girl, and saved up money. And then I went to Europe for three months. I did that whole, I'm done school, I'm running away to Europe thing with my best friend. And that was awesome. Recommend to anybody, like that is what to do after school. Yes. And we, and we did the same thing. We went to Ireland separate times, but yeah procrastinate the process of finding a job and go but it's like a crazy thing because you're like totally I was running away from everything but it was still an amazing life experience I would never give up for anything else absolutely and just we like slummed it we you know we had like budgets some days of like five euros we literally had a day where we somehow ate and drank water and survived on five euros but we we really pushed that limits And it was fantastic. But when I look back now, I'm like, ooh, there's some like erratic behavior happening there. Like things I would get mad about or if we were drinking and we like got like maybe me and my friend got in a fight or we would cry over something stupid or just even like how we planned out our lives. And so when I came back from that, that was an incredible experience. When you're there, I don't know if you had this, but it's like you're kind of like anything's going to happen. And also like whatever, I'm on a trip vibe but when you do that for three months it's a little longer it's not a trip you're not gone for a week it's a lifestyle it's a lifestyle yeah so it like it changes you when you come home because it's like well that's great but you can't live by that mentality you can't go to the bar the pub every day until 5 a.m in canada you just can't do it and say hell with it that's life no (laughs) that's called an alcohol problem (laughs) (laughs) but you're in your early 20s so it's fine but i'm in my early 20s and i'm in europe so whatever Um, but yeah, so I came back and I think after that, trying to get into the event industry and being so unsure of myself, cause I, all I ever knew was musical mm-hmm. theater. Um, you know, like I wore the badge of honor that like I've trained in theater and musical theater since I was like seven or 
whatever. Um, but now coming out of all this, I'm going, I have no real life experience. I have these cool connections that now I can look back and be like, yeah, I turned those into paid jobs. Mm -hmm. Those are contracts I still have. That's incredible. And like something like boots, I have so much pride for because at that time I was like, well, that's a cool experience. I could die any day and it's a volunteer thing. So that's not a job. And so when I came home from Europe, I was like, I'm screwed. Like I've got nothing. I'm moving back in my parents' house. I've gained a shit ton of weight because I just traveled Europe and ate whatever <laughs> I wanted. And drank. No regrets. <laughs> drank. And and I still have this whole grieving thing going on that I'm pretending like, you know, this isn't necessarily a huge problem. And where am I finding work? Nowhere. Because I have a diploma in musical theater. So I didn't even like applying for jobs because I just felt so insecure about it. So I came home and started teaching music for a friend. And I was like, well, this is backtracking because... I'm not in this industry anymore, but it was, I had, it was the one thing I really had. So yeah, I would say that was about a two year journey of, yeah, the shitty, like living at home, bad relationships. Like I had a boyfriend that was, I was not nice to, that was toxic. Um, my friendships, like my best friends to this day, including you are the people where I'm like, I shit on some people for a very long time and they're still somehow here. <laughs> like, it's not the person I want to project. <laughs> it's not the person I want to be. And now when I look back at some of those situations, I'm like, damn, those are good people. I can't believe they're still talking to me. <laughs> That's how I feel. Well, if it makes you feel any better, I don't remember you shitting on me at all during those years. So. Yeah, I feel like there's like a bit of like a sibling thing here where you were probably like, oh, Mary's just being a bitch. You're just like, whatever. I have to love her. I'm just going to let it go. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. You were able to fluff it off more than being like, hey, yeah. get out of so here. So then you were teaching musical theater and then what, or you were teaching music. And then what did you mm -hmm. do? Did you, how did you get back into the event world? Because that's where you are now. Yeah, so I kept hustling. Um, I had, you know, friends getting married. So I'd reach out to them, see if they needed a wedding planner. Cheaper was the goal. I was like, well, weddings are super expensive. So if I can promise you to make your day great and pay me way less money. And so I got some jobs there. I went back to event management school. It was an eight month uh, fast diploma degree. I can't remember. Um, at Seneca. And... It basically just validated that I already knew what I was talking about, but now I have that paper and more experience. I, you know, got to dress up as a mascot and dance at a basketball game. That was probably what I got most out of that program. That was um, the high point of my 20s. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, my high point, the best time ever was that time I got to be a mascot. Not gonna lie, I absolutely love being a mascot because same as like, the reason I was most comfortable on stage is because I have a big personality and I'm loud. So when you get on a stage... You have to be big and loud to project to an entire room and small movements don't get noticed. So when I put on a mascot costume and that big personality comes out, it's very average for a mascot. Did people know it was you? No, no. And I was dancing out. I was dancing out behind these like big basketball players, like crumping. I would never crump in public ever. And I was like shaking my booty stingray thing behind me and like bouncing up on people and they're all laughing. But I was like, if I did that in real life, I get slapped. Do you have any pictures of this? Oh, I have a whole video montage. We will be posting that. To uh, Bruno Mars' Give Up the Funk. Uptown Funk? <laughs> Uptown Funk, thank you. 
God, I'm so out of it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I told, I had, I filmed the whole thing and I submitted it as a project for school. <laughs> it was something where I was like, it's an angle of an event I've never done before. Because I had done all the other stuff. So I was like, this was new. Here's what I learned. It's hot in there. My day as a mascot. <laughs> and it was funny because it was literally like, <sighs> we got there and we were supposed to be, I don't know, doing handing out swag or something for the school. And uh, it was a Seneca basketball game. And... Like, 10 minutes before, they were like, hey, guys, huge problem. The dancer for the mascot's not showing up. And whoever beside me, who's known me for seven minutes, was like, oh, she went to musical theater. She's a dancer. And I was like, and I literally did that thing. I was like, should I correct them and tell them I'm not a dancer at all? I just went to musical theater, which included dance. I'm like, do I correct them? Or do I just say, yeah, I can do this and just see? And I was like, yep, that's... Remember, I've just come back from Europe, so... I'm ready to go. C'est la vie. Yeah, you just do it. So I was like, yep, that's me. I have the qualifications to mascot. I love this. So then you got into doing a lot of weddings. Yeah. What's that like? Oh, it's so much fun. It's a lot of people management. Angry brides? Angry brides. I've never had an angry bride. All my brides have been pretty down to earth. For the longest time, I only did it for close friends and family, people that I knew really well. So I would go into the wedding knowing their entire family or knowing their history. So when a problem came up, I knew how they wanted to solve it because I knew them so well. Um, And, you know, it's it's I do best under that crisis mode. And so when problems came up, I was able to stay clear headed and keep things going. And it's kind of like you're at the point where like, you can't solve this problem. We just have to hide it from everyone else and let them have a good day. So I just got really good at that. Like, what's the solution? What do we do? Do you have a story? Uh, you know I do. I led you down this path so you could tell the story. Give the Sparknotes version. Okay, Sparknotes version is a beautiful wedding, beautiful day. But, but. the officiant was late. The bride's wedding dress got completely ruined by varnish from a door. And yes, it was a white wedding dress. Like an hour, 45 minutes before the wedding. The sound, or sorry, the hydro power went out. It was in a barn, I'll lay the setting. Nice big field with a nice big parking lot. Some people were parking their IVs. Somebody, Some people were taking the bus in. So there's people all over the place. It's getting colder because it's the end of September. They're getting married in the barn, but they're staying in the house. So all of the wedding party has all their stuff in the house, and they're getting this barn ready to go. Officiant can't find them. Caterers come, but they can't plug anything in because the power's out. I'm calling Hydro. They have done a planned power outage for literally 15 minutes before the wedding. (laughs) Then I find out from someone who knows way too much about electricity and doesn't actually work in the industry, a random guest at the wedding starts to explain to me, well, usually power outages with hydro, they test it. So it'll go out for like 30 seconds to a minute and then come back on. Barring any major issues, that's it for the day. If it goes out again, they'll tell you, oh, we'll have this done by five or six or whatever. But it's whenever they get it fixed. They're not turning the power back on until the problem's fixed. So that's what happened. The electricity went out. We went, shit. And then it came back on. We're like, whoa, problem solved. And at this point, I was already trying to, like, get acoustic music out to the venue because, like, the actual ceremony was happening outside. I'm trying to make sure heat's on. The barn is not well insulated. So we're like, okay, how are we going to do this without lights or heat? And then right before the ceremony, we get the varnish off the dress using using tied-to-go pens 
that the mother of the bride had. So they somehow we convinced, so they, they found the dress, they freaked out and brought it upstairs. The bride's still getting her hair done. So I went into the bride and said, hey, cause they were doing their wedding photos before the ceremony. So I said to the bride, hey, the photographer's just gonna go get some other photos. He needs like 15 minutes, but don't worry. Like everything's on schedule. So are you cool to just like, just chill here? And I told her that Dan, like her husband to be was outside. So don't come out, don't want to see you yet. And so she stayed in the room. I go up. The bridesmaids are trying to figure this out. Because at this point, I'm like, I have no idea how to get varnish off of a white dress. Like this, what do I do here? And again, still no officiant, still no power. Caterers are now saying, how do we cook the food? So I'm going, all right, let's do one problem at a time. I can't get her in her dress. So let's start with that. Guests are starting to arrive slowly. So I go upstairs and they say, okay, we've got time to go pens. So we're like, all right, dabble, dab, do not sploosh, you know, no lines, no spreading, just dabble. And sure enough, they got it out. They had like four bridesmaids all with tied to go pens huddled around this dress. And she did not know. We didn't tell her till the end of the day. She was shocked. She had no idea any of that had happened. So then we get the officiant. The officiant shows up. God bless her soul. She's great. The caterers found someone else's house nearby, which no, this is not kosher or legal, but they went and cooked the food at the friend's house. Power is still out. Little old grandma is now freezing and wants to go inside, but there's no heat. And I don't want her going inside and telling everyone that the power's out. Cause right now everyone's cool and calm at a ceremony. Luckily the first drink was happening outside with speeches. So then this gentleman who knows way too much about hydro pulls without talking to anybody, pulls his RV up into the whole venue space in front of the barn. So we can't hide this problem. He brings in the RV and says, well, look, we can power everything from the RV. So at first I go, cool, okay, that's fine. The owner comes back and gives us a generator for half of the building. So we got that covered. We got the food going again. We got at least some lights on for like safety maybe. And this guy then tells me about a suicide cord, which is literally, they cut both ends of a extension cord, electrical cord, whatever, to make them both, I think it's both positive or both negative. And he said, so it'll work really well. And if I can attach them properly, the RV will then generate all the electricity we need for the band and the other half of the barn. However, if I do it wrong, it will kill me. <laughs> so I'm like, we're not going to do that. Like great, great problem solving. I get that. Like if that worked, it'd be great. We're not, I can't, I can't have you do that. So he went and did it anyway, of course. Thank God. Yeah, because he got everything going and didn't die. So that was great. And I, the whole time I'm like, if anyone shows up at this house, like we are all being fined. Well, at least someone's being fined and everyone's being escorted off this property. Like this is just not okay. So long story short, we came to realize it was not an actual venue as promoted it was. I don't think they had the licensing because it would not have gotten approved. So yeah, we got the whole thing rolling. They turned on some cool disco lights on the RV. So at night it ended up being like a hip place to go and hang out if you were like having a smoke or wanted a break. And yeah, like they they danced the night away and we didn't have enough chairs for dinner, but people just stood around and like everyone at that wedding was a total trooper, but it just made people get closer. They drank more. Your parents, my parents were both at that wedding. Yeah. They said they had no idea. Like, it just looked like we were running around chaotically, but they said they had no clue that any of this shit had happened. And it wasn't until the end of the night 
So everything's closing down. We've got like everyone gone on the buses. Everyone's back inside. And there were more hiccups throughout the night, just not as powerful as the other ones, literally. I go inside and I'm like, I'm gonna go say bye to the bridal party. And I just wanna like tell them like, man alive. <clears throat> like that was a shit show. So I go in and I'm like, hey guys, great night. What a chaos, eh? And we're talking and one of the guys is super drunk and they've put a pizza box that they've ordered on the oven. And he leans up against the elephant and lights the pizza box on fire. So me and the only other sober girl in the room deal with it. <laughs> we put the pizza box out. I clear everything off. I told the one sober girl, like, I'm really sorry. There's likely, like, if you need any more help, you have to call 911 because I'm leaving. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't me anymore. I'm out. <clears throat> yeah, so I was like, I'm going to put out the literal last fire and then I'm going home. <laughs> Chaos, pure chaos. Oh, man. But now you're prepared for anything in the wedding industry, in events. Yeah, and those guys are happily married. They just had their first baby, so they're clearly doing good. And it's because of you. You can take full credit for that baby. Thank you. Thank you. I've been waiting for someone to say that. You You did it. (laughs) All right, so then let's move on to our final questions. Oh, What was your biggest learning curve throughout your 20s? Ooh, learning curve. Uh, Getting a house... Mm-hmm. biggest learning curve I'm still learning it I've had a house for a year and it's frustrating because it should be taught in high school oh yeah right absolutely it should be taught in high school like what why do I know how to get the square root of shit I don't need to know that I need to know how to do my taxes and get a house which is funny because like clearly you still kind of don't know I absolutely don't know <laughs> how to get the square root no I completely agree like we I completely agree that's what I just said Um, I completely agree it uh, you could debate it all day long but what came around was like understanding the legal process understanding the sale process at the time houses were going you know every two days every three days so you had to like really get in but that's hard like it's my first house I don't want to buy the wrong one and I don't want to make the wrong decision but if you didn't act fast you weren't getting it and then you know giving like you know sending in an offer and then having a response and sending back an offer and how much time they have and like things like certain clauses like my parents had to come in and help me go okay they need to fix this they need to fix this and get this change in that and my dad's super thorough so he was doing stuff that I was like so frustrated at the time because I just wanted done like the instant gratification in me is like if someone said to you like you're gonna get this really pretty dress but like first We have to go through all the paperwork. And then second, we're going to debate on how much that dress is going to cost. And then third, when you actually get it, I need you to tell me everything that's wrong with it so I can fix it before you have it. And we'll have people sign that. And then you need to put a bunch of money down. And also, there is insurance on this. And you should get insurance on the other part for the money as well. Like, so much shit. So, so much shit that it just got to a point where I was like, just survival mode. So I would email my broker, uh, my insurance broker, I'd email the bank, I'd email my real estate agent and literally be like, guys, I'm a dumb dumb who's doing this for the first time. Explain this in layman's term. What is the, what do I have to do today? Give me a checklist. Yeah, I had to put in my, not security deposit, something with a check, my void check, I don't know. See, I even forget now. I had to give them money and it had to go in by a certain date. And I was out working an event in the middle of nowhere for another company. I couldn't leave. And they called me and they were like, you need to have this in in like an hour. 
And luckily my parents were in town and were able to go, but I was like, I can't, I literally can't. And I've been asking you every day, what do I need to do? Cause I don't like, don't, don't ever assume I know anything. I don't, I know nothing. Treat me like I'm five. Yeah. And they were amazing, but there was still stuff that got missed. Cause it's, it's a process. So it was amazing. And afterwards I was, I felt empowered, like as a, a lady doing it on my own and not like getting married or doing it with significant other. I felt great that I had to like learn all that myself and keep it all. And it's still stressful every day. Shit comes up that like, there's a leak in the basement right now and I got to figure out how to deal with that. But I'm not right now. I'm going to do a podcast instead, you know, so we'll learn what the problem is with that. And how were you able to get a house by yourself? I have parent support. So my parents helped me with the startup costs of it. And then since, especially with COVID, I don't have the income that I had. They are assisting me with the house. It's the only way to do it now. It's the only way to do it. And a lot of people, there are some people that can do it on their own. And I give Mm -hmm. them so much credit. And if they've saved and, and, you know, I have friends that spent their early 20s starting to save for a house. I didn't have that outlook on life. I wanted to go to Europe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Right? Like... Or I was working a shitty job and so any extra money I had, I wanted to spend on me at that time. I didn't want to wait and save for a house. So um, yeah, my parents, you know, I was finishing up a lease and I was looking at homes in Orangeville for rent and rent was more expensive than a mortgage Mm -hmm. would be. So for my parents, they were like, you know, this is how a lot of people are doing it now. This just makes sense for us to help you now get into the market, get you learning while they, they had the opportunity and ability to help me with that, they were like, we got to do this now. So they still like, they were very supportive, but they were like, this is on you, which is why I give them credit because they were like, we're helping you, but you're buying this Yeah, house. you figure it out. Yeah. So I still had to go through all that process. And then, yeah, I'm just lucky that I have them as external support if shit hits the fan and then COVID hit and shit hit the fan. (laughs) Is there any advice that you would offer for anybody who's going into buying their first house or thinking about it? Um, So keep saving, obviously. I would say shop around at your banks for your more, like your approval for your mortgages, just to learn more about what different banks are offering. A lot of us grow up with the same bank account and like I'm with Royal Bank because that's what I got when I was 14 or whatever. And it made sense to go with them because my whole family's with them and their loyalty and all that. But um, in the most recent years, I've just thought about, you know, I really wish I had done that. I wish I had found out what other rates there were, what other plans there were. And then the other one is shop around for real estate agents. I have an incredible real estate agent. And, uh, you know, one of my brothers, he's gone through some really bad ones, some really terrible ones. So if you can, you know, get referrals from friends or people that have used that person or just literally shop around, start looking for houses now, learn what it means to hold a mortgage, learn what it means to be pre-approved for a mortgage. Um, It's so annoying. And if you're not that type of person, you want to throw your head through a wall. Like even as I talk to you, you're probably going like, I'm never doing this. But it's an incredible investment. When COVID hit, I had an investment portfolio that tanked, but my household value. Went way up in value, actually. And it still is. Yeah, it's going up. Like, it's an incredible, incredible investment. And again, monthly, I'm putting less money into my house than I was paying rent. Mm -hmm. You're in a dope situation. Yeah, I have good rent on my apartment. I got a very good deal. But I would rather be paying more to have that investment of a house 
But as of right now, like, the prices for houses are ridiculous. I actually went to a mortgage advisor recently to be like, this is my salary. This is my savings. What can I be looking at? And she said to me, well, you know, a lot of millennials these days are actually, I'm not sure if this is an option for you, but they're getting help from their parents or they're being gifted a down payment from their parents. And I was like, as a mortgage advisor, what makes you think that it's okay to one, tell me that without knowing my story? There are a lot of people who aren't in situations that that's even possible. And two, isn't there a bigger problem if that's what you're advising? Like, let's let's deal with the bigger issue here rather than telling people to get gifted down payments from their parents. And that's, and you're right, that is the way most people are doing it. And it's the only way they're able to get into the market. And it's interesting too, because when I first got it, a lot of people just assumed because I work all the time and because I work really hard, I think people assumed I just did it on my own. And I felt that I was like, I think I have a responsibility to tell people the honest truth, as great as it feels to make everyone think I'm just fucking killing it in the world. I'm not. I'm 28. I'm still figuring my shit out. No, mom and dad helped me and I'm fine with that. And I'm going to use that opportunity to do better and know that likely I'll have to do that for my children too. Because I don't think, like you said, that bigger problem, I don't think that's resolving anytime soon. There may be a crash. I don't know enough about the market as a whole to know. Lots of people keep saying that like, oh, for sure, this is crashing. But then I'll hear someone else say, no, it's only going to go up from here. So I think there, yeah, I think there's several conversations that could be had in there. I think for someone like yourself, the goal of just making more money is actually super achievable. You're a hard worker. You have a lot to offer and you're a fast learner. So like if you set the bar and, you know, put out for yourself like, hey, I'm going to make however much money in five years. And from now till then, I'm going to save X amount of dollars like maybe that gets you there. I will say, and this is like the super shitty part. So when I got my house, I didn't have a housewarming. I think like maybe two people brought me like little housewarming gifts, like presents type things that would help with the house. And having someone live here now, I'm like, holy shit, this is way easier with two people. Obviously you have two incomes, but also <clears throat> if you move in with someone, and you buy a house together, it's seen as like a, a moment in the relationship. And people buy you shit that you need for the house. Like when I first moved in, I was like, I don't have cutlery. I don't have stuff to put in these shelves because I don't own anything. And I'm like, I can't cook. Like I, I, ha I had roommates before that had all my cooking stuff. So I moved into this house and I was like, I don't have a sheet pan thing. I don't have a cooking baking sheet. Right? But I was like, but I can't afford it because literally my mortgage is taking all my money away. So I need it, right? And I was like, wow, there's still this weird thing that like anyone who's been like a single parent and had to do it or has done it on their own for years, I just give them so much credit because just that experience, like entering into it and doing a year of it on my own, I was like, holy shit. Like once you add another person, this becomes significantly easier. Do you have any advice for your 20-year-old self? If Mary Margaret was sitting beside you, little 20-year-old Mary, what would you say to her? Or just general advice for anybody who is in their 20s? I would say have more confidence in yourself and your journey. We're supposed to fail. 
I think at all stages of life, but in your 20s, trust the process, trust in the things that you're going to fail at are actually going to help you towards achieving stuff in the future. So whether it's a breakup or you get fired from a job or you have to move out of the apartment that you've been living in for 10 years and that's devastating or you travel the world and it doesn't go well for you, whatever, like there's go back to school, all those things. I think every, we're, we're so stuck in comparing ourselves to each other and again, comparing ourselves to like what someone else's life looks like on Instagram, which is a lot of assumption versus reality. And so if I could go back and say to myself, like, look, you're exactly where you're supposed to be and get used to not knowing what the hell's going to go on because this is just what every stage of life looks like from here on out. Because at the beginning, at the beginning of 20s, we we are used to that systematic life. We're used to being in school and knowing you may not know anything, but you know you're going into grade 10 next year. Like, that's just the habitual, right? You may not know anything, but you know that you have the summer off or you're going to summer camp. Like, that structure is so embedded in you from two years old or whatever onwards. So, yeah, that advice to my 20-year-old self or someone else is like, it's supposed to be hard. You just got torn out of a system. And regardless of if you go right back into work and you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever in life and you're killing it, life will come at you at some point and it's gonna suck. And that's okay. So true. <laughs> it's supposed to happen. And then with the highs too, it's like, love the success and be grateful for it in the moment, but don't expect this to just be your life forever, right? Like movement is good and in those moments where I've been like, I'm killing it. I love my job. Everything's working perfectly. Life's great. It's not sustainable because, you know, you still have self-doubt. You still have life shit that happens, ebbs and flows. And so, yeah, it's just like that constant reminder that like shit's supposed to happen the way it is and you will come out okay. You just, you have to take it in for what it is, accept it and keep moving forward. Great. Well, I think that was probably the shortest conversation we've ever had, Mary. I know. So in case people want to get in contact with you, perhaps they want you to plan, after hearing that story, they want you to plan their wedding. <laughs> How can they reach out to you? Um, I would say the best way to reach out to me will be Instagram. Mary Margaret Courtney. No spaces, no caps, no hyphens. All right. So this has been an episode of Talking 20. Hopefully you know Mary a little better now as your host. And we're excited for you to follow along with our podcasting journey. And please, any feedback is appreciated. We want you to be as involved in this journey as you want to be because, hey, that's what this podcast is all about, hearing about people's journeys. And this is a big part of Mary and my story. So we're excited for you to come along for the ride. Thanks for listening.